0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The late physician and missionary to India, Paul Bland, once recounted how he was in a hospital in India and among the people going there for care was a devoted Hindu who had stretched out his arm like this and the arm was locked in this position permanently because the Hindu had made a vow that in dedication and consecration to his God he would never lower that arm again and the muscles had locked in place so he was in the hospital. That is extreme. Now we who follow Christ here, if that's you, We're also extreme in what the world would call religion, but in what we know as a relationship with Jesus Christ and with His Father through the Holy Spirit. But we're radical, and it's not possible to be a follower of Jesus and to be anything less than radical by the world's standards. So there is a kind of holy zeal, a kind of extremism without which you can't really be a Christian. The kind of tepid cultural Christianity that can add Jesus on as an afterthought is not genuine Christianity. Jesus requires, just as he always has, those who follow him to renounce all to follow him with everything that they have. So we ourselves are extremists in that sense. It's good for us to have coursing through our veins something of our great forefather in the faith, Phineas, who in the Old Testament stopped the plague of God by taking spear in hand and acting zealously. And God said because he was jealous with God's own jealousy, he stopped the plague. We should have something of that spirit in us. Jesus himself fulfilled the psalm that spoke of him as... Zeal for God's house has consumed me. And he did so by flipping tables. So we need to be extreme in those ways, but what we're considering today is the fact that not all extremes are created equally. There is a good sort of extreme, if you will, a good sort of zeal and energy to the Christian life that's incumbent upon all of us to have. But there is also an evil unholy religious extremism. And we're going to see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. The Pharisees of Jesus' day were extreme in the sacrifices that they made. They were born out of a desire to keep God's people holy, and they not only attempted to keep the law of God to the letter, but they built large fences around them to keep laws about the laws of God. But it was not a good extremism. Muslim terrorists, no one can deny that there is an extremism about being willing to give your own life for your convictions, but it is not a good extremism. I've titled today's sermon, Extremism, and I'm using that title to refer to bad, unhealthy and unholy zeal in the cause of religion or belief, if you will. That is the kind of extremism it's necessary for us to avoid. Now, for us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we can't just point elsewhere to other religious systems and point out their kinds of extremism because we have it here among ourselves as well. Just thinking in my own mind, I can remember, and you've known instances in your own life, I can remember a time when I was committed to praying outside in the wintertime with minimal covering. <laughs> And I thought, this is a holy act, I'm going to pray outside, even though I was only a few feet away from a door, and it was a nice warm inside. But I was determined to pray outside. Why? I don't know. But I was determined, and I remember afterward coming back inside and fearing that I really damaged my fingers (laughs) by exposure to the elements. And the reality is, God would have heard me just as well in the nice heated inside as he heard me outside. But it was a sort of unhealthy extremism. I can think also of an instance where I sat in a meeting with a young man, a believer, younger in the faith, and with me seated some very godly, seasoned older saints and the young man was sharply rebuking these older men for something that they shouldn't have been rebuked for. And I thought, a genuine believer, but an unhealthy sort of extremism, an unhealthy, a misdirected kind of zeal. We're talking about extremism today because that is exactly what the verses in Galatians 1 discuss, verses 13 and 14. Paul is about to begin a more than a chapter long discussion of his own history as a way of proving that he didn't make up the gospel. He wants to demonstrate mainly today that it was very unlikely that he would not only make up a gospel but even believe it because he used to be a Jewish extremist. Let's see that in our text Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism. Beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Last week, Paul had summarized really this entire letter by saying the gospel preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not human in its nature. And he said, it's not human in its origin. I didn't receive it from anyone. I received my gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Your soul, my soul depends upon the truth of that thesis. Now, the rest of the letter is a defense of that argument that Paul's gospel is the true gospel. And so, even our text today, you notice, begins with the word for, because what begins here and runs through about half of the next chapter even, all the way through, is Paul recounting his own history proving how he came to Christ, how he became apostle, how he came across the gospel that he preached and that the false teaching Judaizers were threatening. Where did his gospel come from? And he's going to make the point that his gospel did not come from any man, especially not from the apostles in Jerusalem. Because it seems the Judaizers were making the claim that's where Paul heard the gospel and just changed it up from there. Paul wants you to know that his gospel came from heaven. Our text begins with four, because he is going to now give evidence for why you should believe that. We take it by faith, but on a human level, evidence for why you should believe this apostle Paul. And the very first thing he wants to get across to the Galatians is how unlikely it was that he, of all people would ever preach the gospel that he preaches, much less invent it out of his own head. The suggestion is that there must have been direct intervention by Jesus Christ. There must have been a supernatural power involved to change him from what he is in verses 13 and 14 to what he becomes in verses 15 next week on, or two weeks from now, onward. That's the point. That's that's where these verses fit in. But we want to do something with these verses that we did also last week, because not only is that the argument that Paul's making, but in making that argument, through the Holy Spirit who has us in mind, Paul is also going to provide for us an example. Last week it was an example, or a few weeks ago, an example that we should not be people pleasers, because that was Paul, he was not a people pleaser. But now it's the reverse kind of example. Now Paul harkens back to a time when he was a religious extremist, and the example is for us not to be the same, (laughs) not to be extremists in the negative sense. So that's what we're going to focus on using this text today, and may the Spirit guide us and protect us through His Word as He always does. We're going to look at this under two headings. First, I want to consider the heart of extremism, so just what is it? because you all think something different when we say that term. And then secondly, we want to look at the harm of extremism, the dangers posed to the person who are extremists and to others. So let's begin with this text, looking at the heart of extremism. What was it that Paul was in Judaism that you ought not to be as a Christian? Look at the text. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism... How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Notice the word advancing. That's usually a very good word. Advancing in your career... Advancing in almost any sphere of life is a positive, but not here. Notice again he uses the word zealous toward the end. Zealous is another good word. Which of us as Christians don't want to be zealous for the honor of Christ? Even this term Judaism that he uses is a good word. God brought the knowledge of salvation through the Jewish people and their scriptures. Judaism is a good thing. So these are good, so why, when taken altogether, are they bad? <laughs> what is it, in other words, that set Paul's being extremely zealous apart so that instead of being a good thing, it was a very evil and terrible thing? And I think what set Paul's extremism, his zeal apart that made it bad, applies also to us when we're considering our own zeal and energy for the Lord. These are markers that would also make our zeal bad, and there are two of them. Number one, while zeal is good for the Christian, you can know your zeal is a bad, unholy zeal if it has the wrong object. Start at the end of our passage. So extremely zealous was I, good, so far, for the traditions of my fathers. The object of Paul's zeal was the traditions of his fathers, and that is a serious problem. This is not to say that if you were to ask Paul when he was unconverted, the time he speaks of here, that he would have said that exactly, maybe, but he also would have considered himself zealous for Yahweh, for the one living true God whom the Jewish people worshipped. In fact, in Acts 22, he refers to this point in his life and says he was being zealous for God just as his unconverted Jewish audience was at that point. However, although that can be stated that way, that Paul did have, as all good Jews of that time, a certain zeal for God, I think what he gives us in this passage is some more clarification of the kind of zeal that he had. He would have considered it a zeal for Yahweh, and yet he describes it here in retrospect as this, a zeal for, mainly, the traditions of my father's. Paul was an extreme Jew with a bad object for his zeal, the traditions of his fathers. And even though he was Jewish, this is a temptation set before you and me as Christians. And I certainly think that is one of the reasons the Spirit gives us these verses to protect us from this very thing. What he did is something we're all tempted to do, which is he took traditions of his fathers and he confused them for... God and the truth of God. I do not at all doubt that when Paul, this well-trained, academic, rabbinic, Jewish scholar studying under Gamaliel, when he thought deeply about his allegiance, it would be to Yahweh, and yet it was so Packed with traditions, with what rabbi so-and-so said and rabbi such-and-such, with this build-up, almost a corrosive build-up, where somewhere at the beginning there was the Old Testament scriptures, even for the Pharisaic party of which he was a part, that was at the core, and yet this corrosive build-up of human traditions, which always happens, builds around that until it completely departs from it, and that was Jesus' main criticism. Of the Pharisees and people just like Paul back then. So there is, even in Paul's day, when he thinks of his unconverted self, some attachment to the Bible, the Old Testament Scriptures. It's not like Paul as a Jew threw the Scriptures away and said, I just am interested in traditions handed down by my fathers. You know that within any religious system, it's always this way if there are sacred texts. So for us as Christians, traditions that we get used to, passed down through generations, always have some connection to the Bible. But the question for us, what demonstrates whether it's just tradition that we're zealous about or God and His truth, is is this a truth that builds out of Scripture itself? Or is it a truth that comes from a forefather somewhere, a culture somewhere that we like, and then after the fact, we attach it to the Bible? there is a very large difference between those two things. I'll give you just one example if that's not clear. So for us, there are many believers who would be similar to us in conviction, and maybe some who are here, who believe that the King James Version of the Bible is the only accurate, faithful translation of the Scriptures into English, and some into any language at all. The King James Version which was authorized by King James of England in 1611 and revised afterward a little bit. But that 1611, sometimes called the authorized version, is a great translation. I love to read it. The language is beautiful and ornate, although fairly dated today because it's been several hundred years. But there are some who believe, so they don't, I appreciate the King James. I like the language. I like Shakespeare, so I like the King James. I like the language, but that's different than saying that the King James Version, which has been passed down from the forefathers, is the only translation a Christian can use. But there are many churches, actually, that do make that claim. You see, language changes, and even the manuscripts that good godly biblical scholars use in order to produce a good translation, we have many more than we did in 1611. Many, many more. God's blessed us with that. And so, translations are legitimate. Other trans- you might have an NASB, an ESV, whatever. Many translations are very legitimate, but there is a sort of tradition that has been passed down in some circles, even people we respect, a tradition that's been passed down. The tradition is not the Bible. That's holy tradition. That's truth. The tradition is the idea that the King James Version is the only faithful translation of the Bible. When Paul says he was so extremely zealous for these traditions that had been handed down, there are many churches that would die on the hill of the King James Version of the Bible, that it's the only faithful translation. That is a tradition from forefathers, and it's difficult to reason with someone holding tightly to that, although reason is against that. But a part of the reason was because newer translations which started in the early 1900s in English, these newer translations leading to what we have today rose around the same time that theological liberalism rose in prominence in the United States. And theological liberals who disagree with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his virgin birth, who deny the truth of the scriptures, that's not us, okay? But as that was rising in prominence, so were these new translations and theological liberals had a tendency to like them And so those who were more fundamental in belief, including ourselves, wanted to distance themselves from any association. And to do that, when they perceived that threat, they said, let's say the King James is the only faithful translation. It's a Bible that will never change. We'll keep it exactly as it is forever so no one can taint our scriptures. But that's simply not true. That's only a tradition. And traditions that develop with a sense of feeling threatened by the outside world are usually the ones you're willing to die for because there's a fear associated with them. And that's what happened in that example. So this being extremely zealous for traditions of our fathers, I choose that example and there are many others. If you just think of, of our fathers as producing the sort of culture that we're in, the culture that you are, your forefathers, it's led to where you are, then you can think of just how many times God's people have, even though they're in agreement about all central doctrines of the faith, battled fiercely over things that in the end were probably mainly traditions from the fathers, cultural matters. We can hear down the echoes of the last decades, people saying, so extremely zealous was I for my preference in music in worship. (laughs) Many battles over this. So extremely zealous was I for, not even against those who differ on political positions from me, but those who differ in political emphasis in the same position. (laughs) So extremely zealous was I for the decorations in the foyer, for the color of the carpet, for the look in the front, for changes made to the external building. And all of us know that shouldn't be the case. And all of us know that is the case. It is a temptation before all Christians that there are traditions handed down from our fathers. There are things culturally that we appreciate that eventually for us become something we are extremely zealous about. Paul's extreme zeal was wrong because its object was wrong. And if the object of your extreme zeal is wrong if it's not Jesus Christ and His very clearly revealed truth in the Word, not some secondary obscure point, but very clear teachings from the Word. If that's not the object of your zeal, then you are being an extremist in not a good way, which Paul was doing as well as a Jew, and we do not want to do. So, wrong object, that's extremism. There's a second marker for us, though, and it was there for Paul too, and that is even if you have the right object or aim of your zeal, if you go about it the wrong way, it's still extremism. It's still bad. (laughs) Wrong method, we could say. Wrong object, wrong method. Notice that here with Paul. He says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Even if Paul had been right that the Christians were in error in following Jesus Christ and claiming that he had resurrected, it would have been wrong for Paul to follow this method of extinguishing that teaching. (laughs) You can't just go out and kill people. (laughs) Thankfully, we're not doing that so much anymore in the West. That's good. But this was a wrong method. This was a wrong way of approaching things. This is what Paul says of all his kinsmen in Romans 10. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Zeal, good, for God, even an approximately right object. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he explains himself, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that is, when you trust in Christ, you get God's righteousness imputed to you. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This was a case where the Jewish people, just like Paul, had sought to become right with Yahweh by strict adherence to His law, not faith in the Savior that He had provided. So even if their zeal was toward God, the method was wrong. They were trying to pursue it as if it were by works, just like the Judaizers. And this is always true, that zeal, even with a right object, if the method of pursuing the object is wrong, then it becomes an extremism. So, within Christianity, it is right for you to hold a great, fervent zeal for the Word of God, but it is wrong for you to do what you probably are aware at least one church did and burn the Quran publicly to demonstrate it. Good to love the Scriptures. That was very much the wrong method of demonstrating a love and a zeal for the scriptures. Some of you here remember our former associate pastor, Eric Coher. I took his position. He took another position years ago. I remember Eric telling me one time, because he used to be on staff with Campus Outreach, so helping students, and there was a college basketball player who had come to Christ. And this basketball player, as he was playing basketball now as a Christian, carried over old habits of getting so angry on the court. So the player told Eric, I'm going to quit basketball. I just get too angry. So to fix the anger, I'm quitting basketball. And Eric told him, and often gave this counsel, that's a good observation, and that's the wrong application. (laughs) So maybe it's good that you want to overcome your anger, but is this the right way to go about it? How about we actually deal with the anger that you have, (laughs) which would be a better way to approach it? So, if your zeal has the wrong object, or even the right object, but the wrong method, it's going to become an extremism. That's exactly what it was for Paul. So that's the heart of extremism. Let's not be that. But that moves us now to the second point of the passage, which is the harm of extremism. What does it matter if you have the wrong object or method in your zeal? Well, Paul tells us why it matters. First of all, extremism hurts yourself. Paul started by saying, you have heard of my former manner of life. And you cannot see the expression on Paul's face when he wrote or spoke that to a secretary to write down, but it might have been a grimace. Paul's former manner of life was something that he was not proud of. It's something that pained him. It comes up time and time again in his writings, and it's never something that he's proud of. It's something he derives no pleasure from. You are probably aware, and maybe have used the phrase, that Paul referred to himself in 1 Timothy 1 as the chief of or foremost of sinners. And you and I, aware of our own weaknesses, often apply that phrase to ourselves. We are the chief of sinners. But interestingly, Paul was not referring to his ongoing struggle with sin as a Christian in 1 Timothy 1. When Paul referred to himself as the greatest sinner there is, he was thinking entirely back to his former life in Judaism. He was ashamed of what he was. He persecuted God's people. He could say of that time what he wrote in Romans 6.21, but what fruit were you getting at that time, former life, from the things of which you are now ashamed And then of his own apostleship, he could say, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. There are probably some who are here right now who are religious in every respect, who are willing to make sacrifices even for God. Here you are at church, you could be somewhere else on a Sunday morning, and yet you've not from the heart genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ, rested in His grace, received a full pardon. Instead, you're trudging along, trying, like the Jewish people of old, to be right with God through great zealous action. That is a kind of extremism. You might not be lethargic about religious things, you might be deeply concerned about your own soul deeply concerned about the things of Christianity and its progress in the world, and yet you're going about it the wrong way, you hurt yourself with that kind of extremism, not receiving and embracing the grace that Jesus Christ provides. Paul resisted that. No doubt he had heard the gospel. He was putting Christians to death. He stood by while Stephen was stoned and proclaimed the gospel. He was there watching the coats. He approved of his execution and then pursued Christians to the death. There's no doubt that Paul had heard something of Jesus. That's why he was persecuting the followers of Jesus. But in his heart, he was completely closed off to the message of the gospel. Because his extremism was pursuing righteousness through strict religious sacrifice and observance. And it only really, in the end, hurt himself. If he would have continued in that way, he would have entered into judgment forever because of an extremism unwilling to submit itself to the easy yoke of Christ. This is why Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it. Religion and religious extremism, as odd as it may seem, is a way of trying to save your own life. It's where you say, I'm going to take the good of my soul into my own hands and I'm going to work harder than anyone else ever has. I'm going to make more sacrifices for God so that when I die and stand before him, it would be utterly ridiculous for him to turn me away because of all that I have done. It's the same way Muslim terrorists feel before they kill themselves in harming others. And the worst harm they do, it's terrible to do harm to others. The worst harm they do is to themselves and to their own souls. Verse 14, Paul reflects and says, I was advancing in Judaism, notice, beyond many of my own age among my people. Probably Paul was keenly aware of that fact before he was converted. Because religious extremism tries to get itself in a good place before God by going beyond other people. You compare yourselves with yourselves. You find other people less committed to Jesus, less willing to sacrifice. You say, I go beyond them. I will do everything necessary and make every sacrifice. And you think that putting yourself at the front of the group is what's going to earn God's respect and hence earn salvation. Paul says, that's what I used to think in my former life, and I was completely wrong. Religious extremism hurts yourself because it's not guided by God's word, by the gospel, by the promises of free grace, but it goes on ahead without it. So that's first. Secondly, extremism hurts others. That's pretty obvious in our text. He says, I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. If you want to know more what that looked like, here's Luke's description of it in Acts chapter 8. Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then in Acts 26, here's how Paul described himself. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things We may imagine that because of the breadth of this religious jihad of this Pharisaic Jew, that afterward when he had come to Christ, almost certainly he interacted with friends and family members of those whom he actively helped to have executed. It was a part of what certainly reminded the apostle that he was the chief of sinners. It reminded him of all the damage his religious extremism had done Really, fundamentalist religious extremism, whether it's in us, our temptation toward it, or in any religious system, it's always a blend of confidence and insecurity. That's what it was for Paul. An absolute confidence that he could not be persuaded otherwise, that he was following the true path of God because it had come to him from his forefathers. He could not be persuaded Reason meant nothing. Even the scriptures were unable to penetrate and change his mind. But that confidence was blended together with a genuine insecurity when it came to the followers of Jesus who are rapidly multiplying and perverting this precious Judaism that I love. So he felt confident he was right, and he felt insecure about the Christians who were proliferating because their message was true and God's Spirit was behind it. And his response, just like all extremism's response, was a sort of aggression against the perceived threat. If the Christians are threatening what I hold so confidently and dearly, then there's only one thing to do with them. We have to have them exterminated. Now, by God's grace, this might look like our former life, but if you're in Christ, it's not your present life. However, there are traces of a similar dynamic that you experience yourself in your Christian life. Let me give you an example of this. Think about how we have to hold to the true teaching of Scripture about God's intention for sexuality and marriage, that it is between a man and a woman, and that's all. Now, that becomes less and less popular in the culture. And you watch the news and you read articles and you see people and those who are aggressively advancing LGBTQ as having to be endorsed by the whole nation. And when you see that, there should be within you a grief because you acknowledge that's, that's wrong. That hurts the people. That hurts the nation. It's not God's will. But is it not easy for the grief to turn into this blend of confidence and insecurity that quickly moves us from saying that's wrong, saying it with confidence, saying it with love, to a sort of inner burning hatred, breathing threats and violence, wanting those who bring about what we consider destruction of things we value from our forefathers, wanting them to go away. But they're the mission field. That is a kind of extremism we're tempted with, and it harms others. It's hard to say how much harm has been done by the mistreatment by Christians of those who we should be loving, telling them they're wrong, but loving. I'll never forget the genuinely trembling hatred I witnessed in a dear older believer, a woman who I knew from a a Christian bookstore uh, who attended there at times, I'll never forget, we were talking, she had seen the news about Muslim extremists, I think it was decapitating, doing something horrible, and I'll remember she was literally trembling in a rage, hateful toward those doing these things. We can feel a sort of righteous anger, but that was not a righteous anger. She wanted them not just to be done away with, but to suffer, and she expressed it verbally, the hatred that she felt for them. Paul was just such a religious extremist, like the Muslim extremists were, but Christ loved him. It's not possible for us to love our enemies unless we're willing to fight against this temptation toward a zeal that we decorate with Bible verses, but in the end is a zeal for our own preservation. It's to protect us and our traditions, our culture, us. No. We will die on the hill of Scripture and its truths, but not for ourselves, You can see here, then, the heart and the harm of extremism. And as we come to the end of this, I want to give a caveat for a moment, because even in preparing this message, when I know us, I think we are less prone to this kind of extremism than we are to the other side of things. I think for us, the greater temptation Will not be that we run out and make a fool of ourselves, but that we never go out. (laughs) That there will be a sort of timidity about us or an unwillingness to make a fool of ourselves. So I want to finish this message by saying while these warnings are true, I don't want you to think, I don't want to be an extremist. It's so harmful and bad like Paul was. So I'm just going to stay at home and keep the door closed and not pipe up so that I don't risk it. Please don't do that. You have to see the call of this text not as either be a religious extremist causing harm or be very calm and don't ruffle any feathers. No, don't see it that way. The other way to see it is either be an extreme zealot this way or have the right object and the right method of your zeal and be an extreme zealot in the right direction. The reason we primarily want to avoid this kind of religious extremism is not just because it hurts you and it's not just because it hurts others, but it's because it distracts you away from the proper object of real genuine zeal for the Christian, which is Jesus Christ, His truth, His honour. I don't want Satan to take this message or to take these verses and use them to pour cold water upon whatever embers of zeal for Christ you have in your own heart. Don't think of it this way. Think of it like this instead. It's as if you see before you a path... And at the end of the path must be Jesus Christ, not you, not your agenda, not your preferences, not what you like, don't like, no, it's Jesus Christ, it's His glory, it's people knowing and honoring and treasuring Him, including yourself, and there He is at the end of it. And then on either side of the path are these fences that have been constructed, and these are the Word of God. That's how you know your method is correct. The Word of God to keep you on this side, and the Word of God to preserve you on this side, If you have the fences of God's word up, if you have your object, Jesus Christ, then I don't want you to walk leisurely along the path. If that's the outcome of this message, woe is me. If you have these guardrails for the method, if you have the proper object, I want you to sprint down that path as far and as fast as your spiritual legs can bear to carry you. The Christian life is about zeal, fire, fervor. Woe to us if extremists in the world, Muslim, Hindu, or even Christians misguided, are more energetic. They get up earlier in the morning and they work harder all day to make proselytes that are more children of hell than them, as Jesus said. Woe to us if we sleep in and in a lethargic manner say, we don't want to be extremists, so we're just going to stay right here. No. If you don't want to be a bad extremist, then make sure God's Word is guiding you. Make sure Christ is the focus of your zeal. But when you've made sure of that, run as hard as you can. And may all of us after this brief life be able to say, so extremely zealous was I for Christ and His truth.